Anyone had a good week? Anyone ever have a bad week? <laughs> How many weeks are mostly good? Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, it's, it's cool, isn't it? As uh, Christianity grows and develops, um, what's on the inside becomes stronger than a lot of the things that are on the outside. The outside can rattle us, but our core is who we are in Christ on the inside. You know, I, I want to um, share a message uh, again on our journey in biculturalism as a country. Um, and I just want to come back and want us to come back several times um, through this year, actually, to this, because it's, it's of such an important thing for how we live our lives and how we relate to people, how we think about New Zealand, how we think about Māori people particularly, how we think about people from every, um, every race, every nationality, every country, uh, because we are a, a very multicultural country now. But if the base uh, of the beginning of Māori and Pākehā together, Māori and European together, um, is not known and not healed, then it upsets <coughs> and influences New Zealand going forward. And I, I think New Zealand is such an amazing country. I'm very grateful to have been blessed to be born in this country. It's, it's incredible. And so it's fairly recent history. If you travel overseas and you start looking at thousands and thousands of years of history, and then we talk about 200 years of history, because, of course, the Maori people were here for seven, 800 years before that beginning time, and then just 200 years of <coughs> European and Maori coming together. We're talking about something that's not very far uh, long ago. And Nairi is going to speak uh, um, on this in a couple of weeks' time as well. But I think we, we need to keep thinking about this and, and learning because it, it changes the way we approach um, life here because justice actually matters. Christianity had a huge impact on um, the Maori way of life from 1814 through to the 1840s. And then something that's called colonialism happened. And the race for land by Europeans had a huge impact. And sadly and tragically, many duplicious, unethical, unjust events happened, including wars, as more and more land was wanted by the newly formed New Zealand government. And the government gave no representation to Maori people, even though the treaty... Thanks, Hunt guaranteed Māori equal rights and protection as British citizens and the exclusive and undeserved possession of their lands for as long as they desired to have them. And I reread um, a message, the last message I gave on this, about the treaty's formation. And I sat there after I'd reread my notes, just kind of going, wow, wow, I need to re-preach that to myself let alone to all of us. And I'll probably pull it out and just preach it again at some stage. I, I talked in that message how key influential Christians in, England, in the English government thought up a new kind of treaty. 
And they instructed Hobson and says it must be done in this sort of way. We don't want the way that treaties have been rolled out in other countries in the past. And so it was written by Christians. It was translated and interpreted by Christians. And on the trust of missionaries, particularly on Henry Williams' name and Henry Williams' life, Maori chiefs were um, persuaded to sign that treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi. And I was blown away again by what God did in 1840. You know, as Christians, we can be very, very proud of that document as a founding foundation for the bicultural and multicultural nation that we are becoming and have become. But then after 1840, colonization of New Zealand began. And it began unofficially by a company called the New Zealand Company. Today, I just think that is the, the most amazing branding that anyone's ever had in New Zealand to call your company the New Zealand Company. It sounds so official. It's, it's like he had a degree in, in marketing. When I grew up and I heard about Wakefield, the Wakefield brothers and the New Zealand Company, I assumed that the government of England had sent him out officially. But he was, a, he was an ex-prisoner. And he was told by the government repeatedly, you are not to do this, you are not to do this, you are not to do this. But hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of settlers were sold land by the Wakefields that they didn't own. And they were told the land was completely unencumbered, there were no claims on it, there was even infrastructure in New Zealand that they would be used to, there would be jobs, there would be towns, and when that first wave of settlers came and they realized how, what it was, tremendous shock. And also, right at that time, in the early 1840s, 1841, an election took place in England and the influential Christians who had so influenced Hobson and the treaty lost their positions. Now we understand that, governments roll on, don't they? And when they, hello? Governments roll on, don't they? We're in the midst of a government now, and there'll be another elections in, in 2020 and, and, or 2021, whichever it is, and, and governments will roll on. We're used to that. But, but when governments roll on, key positions in, in power are changed as one allegiance is swapped for other allegiances, and people lose their positions. And secular thinking took over in England again. And as New Zealand started to be colonized, the New Zealand government, a local government, a New Zealand government was set up. And of course, it was made up of new arrivals and members of the New Zealand company. And their thinking was, this is now our land as Europeans. And let's just take possession of, of as much of it as we possibly can, any way we can. And all done without reference to the Treaty of Waitangi. And massive, to be really honest, when we read our history, massive injustices were done to Māori. And within just 50 years, 1890, 25 26 of New Zealand shifted from Māori ownership to European ownership. 25 26 of New Zealand shifted from Māori ownership to European ownership. 
Now, God cares about justice. God highly prizes justice. And so he will, in his time, bring justice to pass on the earth. If we look at Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, The Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. And let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. And then in the New Testament, that, that um, when Jesus wanted to explain what he was about, he, un- he put, went to the scroll in Nazareth and he unrolled it till he came to this point in the book of Isaiah. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He set me, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set oppressed people free from that oppression. And just thinking about New Zealand today, the good news for us in New Zealand today is that there is a real renaissance in things Māori, in Māori culture and Māori people. And that renaissance is coming out everywhere. You can't watch the news today without having Māori words, te reo, coming at you. Words are just interchanged um, in a way that they weren't 10 years or 20 or 30, certainly not 50 years ago. And, and I believe God is actually behind this renaissance of Māori culture in New Zealand. And the sh- shift that it is bringing is bringing an openness to examining New Zealand's actual history. How many went to school and found that it was accurately taught to you. Hmm. Someone from the church here went out to, to meet uh, Kevin, Kevin, <laughs> this is off the cuff, um, the, the deputy uh, leader of the Labour Party, Kelvin Davis. And he agreed, yes, we need to be opening up New Zealand history. But when he was asked, will it be taught in schools? It's a step too far still. But it won't be that long before it is actually taught in schools. Because of this renaissance, that shift that's actually taking place. And books have been written, and movies like uh, the Parihaka movie, which um, we're going to be showing here in the church here on Saturday, 19th of October. It's a little way off, but I want to highlight it. We're, going to, we've, we're inviting someone down from Parihaka because they won't allow their movie to be shown without someone from the tribe being there to be able to speak to it. But it's a very interesting portrayal, or not an interesting portrayal, it portrays a really interesting story of what happened in the 1870s, 80s to to their people as as, um, that land was taken from them illegally. And we'll be showing it here on that time. But Māori culture and Māori people are becoming valued in a way that is so exciting and so fantastic. And you see, justice starts with understanding. If we have no understanding, we come with a closed mind, and if anything seems to threaten us, we say no. Isn't that true? Proverbs chapter 2 verse 1 says this, My son and my daughter, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understand... 
Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the kindness or the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So we are told to seek for understanding. And so I want to encourage us today again to open our minds up And I want to reiterate from last time, we didn't cause any of the injustices that have taken place. So we are not guilty. Just say to the person next to you, you're not guilty. So don't carry any guilt as we, as we talk about things that have two sides to it. And, and uh, it's, it's not, we didn't cause it. But we do want to learn more. We don't have to be threatened. It's actually in, the, in, in understanding coming out, I think the best word is that um, we become humble. People can say something that, that formerly would have absolutely threatened us and we would have said, no, I don't want to know or I don't, I don't think it's important. It's not for today. We would have had all our reasons. But when we have understanding of our history, it causes us to have a softened heart causes us to be a lot more humble as things come to light. The first thing I really want to say this morning is that the New Zealand church has amnesia. A very, very common viewpoint is that the past is irrelevant, just live for today. And if you hold that, then there's no need to look at past injustices or to deal with them. And that is a very Western way of thinking. Indigenous peoples don't think that way. They do the exact opposite. They tell stories of what has happened in the past to their family and what the events were that that, that have taken place around them. And and these events (coughs) become the foundation of what they base their life on. They call it whakapapa. You know, when we have amnesia, we're a lot like Jason Bourne. Do you remember those movies, The Bourne Conspiracy, and there were about four of them? And he didn't know who he was. He had instinctive reactions that would make him do certain things, but he couldn't figure out his future till he knew what his past was. He was living in a fog. He didn't have a clear purpose because he didn't know what was coming at him from behind. Now, Hebrew thinking is a lot like an indigenous culture. They too are story-based. You think about the stories of the Bible. And they were told, remember what happened. Tell your children the story so that they don't forget. Put up markers and remembrance stones so that you won't forget. Know what your genealogy is so that you know what, what whakapapa is behind you. What, are you. what family are you built upon? Because if you know your genealogy and who you come from, you'll know where you're going in the future. The Hebrew people were actually a lot like an indigenous culture. Jeremiah 29.11. Can anyone uh, um, say it out loud apart from Mike Button? Yes, to give you a hope and a future is the the key part I want to bring out. And the Hebrew word for future is aharet. And theologian Skip Moen tells us that it doesn't mean, we think of it as being 
the next thing, the forward thing. But he, he says it actually means afterwards, or even backwards, or after part. That's not the normal way we think about things that are in front of us, to be afterwards, or, the, or backwards, or after part. But the Hebrew concept of the future is like a man or a woman rowing a boat. They're looking to where they've been and where they are now, and they back into the future. The focus is on where they've been as they head into the future. And the Maori have a similar proverb. Titiro whakamuri haere whakamua which means look to the past, move forward into the future. And that's usually expressed as walk into the future backwards. You see the similarity between the Hebrew way of thinking and living and the Maori culture? And that's what Jason Bourne couldn't do till he discovered his past. It was the past that told him who he was and where he fitted. And Christianity, Anne's done that for us this morning. Christianity does this all the time. We can't live today as Christians unless we think back 2,000 years ago to a story, an event, a happening that absolutely affects how we live today. We're constantly looking at the past to define how we will deal with decisions and, and what, what God wants for us and what is right and what is wrong. So the church has amnesia. In fact, the nation has amnesia towards what happened in the, from 1841 through to 1880, 1885. There's amnesia in our nation. But also the church is waking up to the fact that New Zealand history has his story in it. New Zealand history, in fact, all history has his story in it. There's a golden thread of God working within our nation, just as there is in every nation. And it starts before Europeans came to this nation. Wow. It starts before the Europeans arrived. You know, Maori people were an oral tradition, an oral people. They didn't have a written language. It was all past. Remember the stories. Tell the stories. And in 1766, three years before Cook arrived to claim this land for Europeans, doesn't that sound bad? Doesn't that sound oh, just a great? From today's worldview and an understanding of all people, all people, not special nations, but in 1766, a Maori prophet by the name of Toiroa prophesied the coming of Europeans to New Zealand. He knew what clothing they would be wearing, what kind of boats they would be coming in and what they looked like, that they would smoke pipes, a lot of them, and various other details. And he painted pictures, he, he drew pictures, and he even made pants to show the Maori people what kind of things the European sailors would be wearing as they got out of the boats coming here. And he prophesied the name of their God will be the son who was killed. 
pretty clear reference to one person, isn't it? The son who was killed, a good God, yet the people, meaning the Maori people, will still be oppressed, he said. The second thing of this thread coming through our nation that we need to understand because there are, there are people who are, would be put in the term really of revisionist, history revisionists, who want to take all of Christian, Christianity's amazing influence in the last 200 years out and say, oh, it was a sub-part of what's going on. But no, we as Christians, we need to be reclaiming the stories and, and being able to tell it in, in uh, 21sts and pubs and conversations that we get into in the work scene. And you know, missionaries didn't impose Christianity upon the New Zealand Maori. You'll sometimes hear that said. Samuel Marsden was invited by an influential chief, Ruatara, to preach the gospel at Oihi Bay, that beautiful bay that you all should go and see in, in the North Island, in the Bay of Islands. And he was invited, he invited other important Napui chiefs to come and to listen to him. And they did come and they did listen. And he did this because he'd all, Ruatara had already traveled to England. He'd seen London. He'd met Queen Victoria. And, and he was badly treated by sailors and almost died on the way back to New Zealand. And he got to Sydney and he was kind of off the boat and, and in, a, in a very, very bad health situation. And he was found by Samuel Marsden and he was nursed back to health. And he saw the effect of the gospel in Marsden as a person and upon Sydney and the rough and ready that was there as Christianity created the, the, uh, the you put your own word in, into society to redeem it and to help it and to heal it. And he said, we need this in New Zealand. And he invited Samuel Marsden to come and to preach here. And although for over 10 years the gospel had little effect on Maori, almost, there were almost no baptisms, no conversions, there came a time when revival broke out in our country amongst Maori people. And literally over 50, 60% of Maori in New Zealand became Christians within a very, very short amount of time. It was absolutely amazing. And New Zealand became the example around the world that other missionaries would say, have you heard about what's happening in New Zealand? Revival has broken out. You really need to hear the stories. It was held up as the example of just the breakthrough of Christianity around the world. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And the most amazing thing is that it wasn't the missionaries who took the gospel across Aotearoa, but it was Maori people taking the message back to their own tribes as people had been enslaved by Napui and Northland, where, where the gospel began to work across that whole tribal and hapu iwi situation in Northland, and they just began to say, it's not right for us to have slaves, and they began to let them go. And people went back to all of the tribes that, of where they had been captured from in the musket wars, and, and they took many of them took with them the gospel to their own people. And Piripiri Taumata Akura who was of Natipuro um, descent, uh, so down the East Cape, down from somewhere of Tolaga Bay, down to Gisborne, down there. Um, he had been captured in the musket wars of the 1820s. He was made a slave, taken back by Napui up north, um, north, of, uh, uh, north of Whangarei. And, and he was introduced to this new God by Henry Williams at, Waim at the Waimati Mission Station. 
And he saw Tirel being written down and, and it being put into books. And he, he learned to read and to write. And the stories of Jesus made a deep impact on his soul. And he gave his life to Christ. And though the missionaries said they did not see anything exceptional in Piripiri Taumata Akura. But in 1833, almost 10 years later, a storm blew a ship up from the East Cape right up to Northland. Now you imagine what kind of southerly that has to be to blow a ship right up north. But it happened. The Napui captured these elders. On the boat were elders of, of uh, the, the Cape. And um, uh, Napui captured them. And they were going to make them slaves. But Henry Williams intervened. And he said, no, these rangatira, um, they need to be allowed to learn the gospel. And they, and they, they were taught at uh, the Waimati station that was there. And then, eventually, they were freed eight months later. As Napui, as I said, the gospel was doing its work into their culture, and they were realizing, we can't keep slaves. We need to set these people free. Now, think of the wisdom of God in this. Maybe think of how God will use a situation. The elders got eight months training in Christ. Piripiri Taumatu Akura got 10 years of training in Christ. The elders came to believe in Jesus Christ, and the leader of leaders became to believe in Jesus Christ, but with 10 years of teaching and understanding behind him of maturity. You know, when the ship reached the East Cape, the people were amazed to see their rangatira returned. But they were ecstatic to see Piripiri Tomato Akura alive. And he got to preach his first sermon the very next day to a huge crowd of people that had gathered from the coast that had heard about it and, and walked to come. And he preached up and down that east coast and he converted hundreds and even thousands to Jesus. And when Henry Williams heard the rumors and the stories of what was happening down on the east coast and he went down there in 1838, five years later, he found a church building that would contain a thousand people down there. This is like Spraden Baptist in the 90s, folks. And Williams said this, he said, A great work has been accomplished in which the hand of the Lord has been manifest. It has not been through the labor of your missionaries. So he's writing back to England. For the word has only been preached by Maori, by Maori teachers. We missionaries had literally stood still to see the salvation of our God. And friends, Taumatu Akura's authority... And his mana just grew and grew. There's a story that says that um, he, he didn't want to fight, but he, was, he became con was convinced by others in the tribe that they needed to fight against a, a neighboring tribe to them. And so he said, okay, if we're going to go to war, we have to have Christian uh, conduct in the war. There's to be no cannibalism. There's to be no destroying of the food crops of the other tribes. We're going to do it in this way. They were two of the, two of the things that he said. And uh, the story tells that he just walked around in the battle with musket balls flying in all directions. And when the battle and the fighting was over, he emerged absolutely unscathed. And the people of the coast said, wow, mana. And Tamata Akura should be a national hero in New Zealand. 
He's a legend in Christian history. Possibly the this was the first time in history an indigenous people had been introduced to the gospel by their own people. And this man is still revered today in the coast and amongst Māori people. Pastor Norm MacLeod, who himself is Māori, who God called to the coast about 17 years ago to plant a church which he calls the House of Breakthrough, says he's standing on the platform of Piripiri. You know, another example of the golden thread of our history, of God's story within history of New Zealand is when Terapraha, who was the chief who decimated Naitahu just up the road here at, at Kaiapoi and then over in, into Akaroa, um, decided to attack Wellington and, and along with Tirangi Hatia. And he wanted to kill all of the settlers that had just recently arrived in Wellington. And this was in response to a threat by the settlers that they were asking the governor to arrest Tarapraha, which is a really silly thing to do in those days. And there had been a violent clash just in Blenheim, and uh, a lot of Europeans, including the local magistrate and, and uh, people who are basically police, had been killed, and a number of Māori had been killed as well. But the, the Pākehā had uh, settlers had come off definitely second best in this clash that they had pushed for in actual fact. And so they wanted, the people in Wellington were saying, you, Governor, you need to arrest Tarapraha. And Tarapraha thinks, right, I'll get you, and I'm going to attack Wellington. It was also in response to William Wakefield's unjust claims to, get this, 20 million acres of New Zealand. 20 million acres of New Zealand. When, when Wakefield and the first ship of settlers arrived in New Zealand, the first port of call was Wellington. On the first day he arrived, he managed to get three deeds signed by Maori people saying he owned it all. This is the first day in New Zealand. And he gets someone, three someones to sign. Did they know what they were doing? Had he found the paramount chief in a tribal culture that says that land is communally owned? Had he taken the time to invest? And did they, for basically trinkets, was it just? And Tirapraha says, I've got the answer for this. Let's slaughter them all. And the thing that stopped that battle and the slaughter at Wellington was the restraining influence of another chief, Wurimu Tirangataki, uh, a Christian, and his 2,000 Tiatiawa warriors that were at Waikanae Pa. And uh, Tirapraha is further up the Kapiti coast, Waikanae, and then coming through and into Wellington. And, and Wirimu stood and said, not one of your, of your warriors will cross our land. And the two Maori chiefs that wanted to attack Wellington stood, stood back. Now, Wirimu was a friend of the missionary Octavius um, Hadfield, a Christian, and he drew that line in the sand. And these are just a few of the amazing stories that are within our country of the golden thread of God and Christ woven into the fabric of our nation's story. 
But God is still at work amongst Maori people today. Last year, I met a lovely Maori woman by the name of Cheryl, who is a trustee at Vision West. And she's a lawyer. I believe she's actually a judge also. Now, her husband had spent time in prison um, in the same cell as one of the founders of the Mongrel Mob chapter, Notorious. And they had become good friends, still good friends. And in the late 1990s, Cheryl, along with a Christian man by the name of Sam Chapman and other Christians, decided to try and influence Notorious Mongrel Mob chapter for Christ and for good. And the president of Notorious was a man by the name of Roy Dunn. And she said that back then, the mob motto, so we're talking 1990s, early 2000s, was mob first. And she said she would go with her husband to the clubhouse and she would sit outside in the car every day. And the next day she would be back and the next week she would be back. And you see, women had no rights. They were not equals. They had no status. Family and the mob had no status. It was mob first, was what these men believed. But she kept turning up in the car park, and her husband would go in. And eventually, she said, one day, someone brought her out a cup of tea. And after that, every day when she turned up, they would bring her a cup of tea. So they were starting to acknowledge that she actually existed, and she was there to wanting to be with the men. And then she was invited in. And she began a journey of influence into the mongrel mob chapter called Notorious. And today, Notorious's motto is Whānau first. Our mokopuna, our children and our grandchildren, our lives are actually about Whānau. Huge, huge change. And the big change came around the year 2000. I want you to watch a, a clip on this that, that is taken around that time. And we'll watch it for um, seven, eight minutes, maybe ten minutes. The Notorious. The Notorious branch of the mongrel mob. Notorious for their intimidating appearance, their violence, their rapes, and, well, their shocking behavior. But here's another shock. The Notorious are shedding that image. They've launched a PR initiative, complete with PowerPoint presentations and slick promotional DVDs. Their message? They're concentrating on their kids, not crimes. Amanda Miller reports. It's a fearsome sight. 400 mongrel mob members en masse, gathered to bury one of their own. This is historic footage. It's the first time television cameras have been allowed at a mob tangi. The mob have been responsible for some of this country's most heinous crimes. Among these men are rapists and killers. But the notorious chapter of the mongrel mob says it wants to forge a new path for its people and change things for the sake of the next generation. We're like any other human, we're parents, we're fathers, we're grandfathers. Everything we look at now. 
and as a mark of how committed Notorious is to the change, the leader, Roy Dunn, has agreed to his first interview in 30 years with the mob. Maybe it's because you're just too old now to be out there robbing banks. We've been there, we've done it. And it didn't get us anywhere. So now we're looking at positive things. But why would the public believe that you truly want to change? Yeah, but everybody deserves a chance. And I guess in time we'll only tell. The notorious patch of the mongrel mob celebrated their 25th anniversary recently. This is the new look mob. They're rebranding with a slick promotional DVD. We cruised around like we had a hundred soldiers. Even though the numbers were low on the ground, we carried our reputation. A choreographed PowerPoint presentation and flanked by their own lawyer, come minder. Where normally they're shunned and loathed, today they're welcome and included. They're at a national hui on prison reform, and they're amongst judges, politicians, and the top brass in the establishment. Instead of standing in a dock or behind bars facing authority, they're standing at a lectern talking with authority. I guess after all these years in jail, fighting the system, But most of all, seeing our kids not grow up, it's made us think, or it's made me think, as a leader anyway. When Roy Dunn was 14, he joined the mob, and about the same time he was told what his path would be in life. Well, see to me, from here, you will graduate, graduate to Borstal Training. From there, you will go to Mount Eden Prison. From there, you will go to Paremurim, maximum. Those words stuck in my head. They even stick in my head to this day. For Roy Dunn and many of his bros here, that prediction was right. Eight years old, I saw a pushbike from school. I was taken away from my family and made they share similar backgrounds of alienation in boys' homes. People died where we, in our journey, people hung themselves. People were killed. We're the survivors. And by the 70s and 80s, their signature was on some of the country's most violent crimes. Aggravated uh, robberies, manslaughter and rapes. When your life has been lived and incarcerated for most of your youth and early adult lives, the years roll by and joining average society means a mountain that is so hard to climb. But when you get to the top, you see the clarity of what you're missing. 25 years ago, Roy Dunn helped to set up the notorious chapter, handpicking top men from other mob chapters. And today he's the leader of more than 100 notorious nationwide. But back then, he says his bros only ever had one family, and it was the mob. I fought the system and my bros wouldn't me at the time. The system was our enemy. No one else was in my will. It was only me and the mob. Kia ora koutou. Greetings, everyone. 
but someone else did come into Roy's life, Sam Chapman, a big man with a big heart from South Auckland, the unlikely messiah of the notorious chapter of the Mungle Mob. Can we just give them a welcome? Eh? It all began nine years ago when Roy Dunn, a father of six, came to Sam Chapman asking for help. I remember Roy saying, you know, Sam, we want to change, but we don't know how. He talked about his own life. He talked about the years in prison. He talked about his children. That I think at that stage, he'd never seen any of them born because he was always locked up when, when they were being born. Sam Chapman, his wife Thelma, their daughter and her sons have shared their home with whoever needs it. And Sam's reputation has spread throughout the world. He's also a trustee for World Vision. And to the bros, he was the first person to believe in them. It wasn't um, about hand out, hand up. It was just a hand. He walked with us. He shared with us. You know? He had no barriers. He opened up to us. And for someone to come in from the outside and do that, you know, it hasn't been part of our thing. You know, a, a gang is just a, a community of people who found a place to belong. That's all it is. And then they channel their, their, their energy into crime. All we're doing is giving them another option to belong. That there is another place that you can call home and family. But the public look at these guys and they're the most odious and feared group in the country. And at times they have been. At times they are. But they can also be the most loving. And we, I've seen them love their children. And I've been a recipient of their, of their love and their respect. Sam's mission began when the painter from Tūrangi married the 19-year-old Irish teacher. Both had come from Christian backgrounds where help and a home would always be provided. And they carried on that tradition as their own family grew up. We don't run a rehabilitation house. We don't want to rehab, uh, run a, a rehab home. This is our family home. Here, the formula for changing lives couldn't be more simple. Sam and his family take in the people that no one else wants. And they've lost count how many people have lived under their roof, but it's more than a hundred. And while the mob have never lived here, it's become like a second home. To me, life is not a project. There's a beginning and an end, and here's what it's going to cost us. Life is life. We make a commitment and we walk together, good and the bad and the ugly. A community where too many of our children die. From his house, Sam runs Project Afi. Support the helping hand of heal. And this is the Gentle Giant's Kingdom. Seven houses provide homes for four generations of his family and those in need. Afi also runs youth services and education programs. It's all paid for by Sam, his family and donations from the public. And not one cent of government funding. Aren't you just one big sucker, Sam? Yep. Yeah, but that's part of it too because that's the price you pay. It is about unconditional. Being sucked in. <laughs> it really is. Um, 
But the return is even greater. And you don't do it because of the return. When Roy got together with Sam, they drew up a strict set of rules for the notorious chapter. Put the kids first or hang up your patch. We've lost some members from the start. If they didn't see that point, that focus of the kids, the door was there, away you go. And you leave your patch behind. Change is happening slowly and often comes down to the basics. Sam's Afi project helps the bros do practical things like get a driver's license, get the kids in preschool, get into their own homes and get jobs. They've even set up a company called Rent to Bro, with a mob take on labouring contracts. How could you expect the puppet to go, I know, this is a job for the mongrel mob. Rent to Bro, let's call them. You know, it's like it's it's a huge leap. It's, it's a huge shift in people. You can look it up for the rest of it. Can we just bring the lights up a bit so that I can see really well? Sam's a great guy. An amazing, amazing Christian. Again, a legend. A legend in our day. You know, a complete change of heart for the sake of the kids. And a complete change of heart because so many of the, the guys in, in the mob were dying because of pee. And they began to organise, um, Roy began to organise beach days, and he would just say, okay, Takapuna Beach, Saturday. And Cheryl said it was really hard for whatever beach they chose and the public that were there when a hundred mobsters to, uh, would arrive. And the police would be following them and arresting the guys who had no licence or had unregistered cars or outstanding warrants on, on them for their lives. And so they, as it said, they had to set up a driver training um, school so that the guys who'd been driving for 10 or 15 years uh, could actually get a license and just follow through some of those very simple things as they began to become more public. And in 2007, um, the Christians in Auckland, I, I don't know who it was, let's just say it was World Vision, invited Nicky Cruz to New Zealand. How many have heard of Nicky Cruz? Is he a well-known figure? You know, crossing the switchblade, um, and he, 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 became a, he was a gangster, he became a Christian, and he's just famous, absolutely famous. And they'd rented a stadium that would seat 1,000 plus. I think it might have been about 1,700 people in the stadium. And Cheryl and Sam told them it's way too small. You need something like Alexandra Park Raceway because we're just going to have thousands and thousands of people come every night. And they offered, and so they shifted the venue to, to this race course, and they offered to be the mongrel mob to be the security, to which the Christians said, So they wrote to Nikki, who said, Yeah. yeah. I mean, Nikki's a mobster. He's a, he's a gangster. Saved. But that was his background. He said the mongrel mob would be fantastic to have. And... Uh, at the same time as Nikki was coming to New Zealand for that crusade in 2007, the, the police came to Notorious and they said, we need your help. They said there is revenge killing, Utu killing, with the killer bees and other newer gangs that have come into South Auckland. And it's happening again at the moment, actually. You'd have read it in the papers. But they said it's just, people are just being shot and executed. Um, we, we can't stop it. There's nothing we can do. Can you help us? So Roy sent out um, a decree, I don't know how they do it, but to every gang leader and their sergeant at arms and said, you are to be at such and such a marae and uh, we're going to have a, a talk. 
And so they turned up. And when Nicky landed on his plane, he was picked up by the mob, put in the back seat, and told you're going to be talking to all the gang leaders in Auckland this afternoon. No police, no media allowed, and the killing stopped. Now, we need to really understand Nicky Cruz is famous amongst Maori who have been to prison. His book is the book to read in prison. And uh, people will pay extra money to go up the list so that when the book's free, it comes to you a little bit earlier. I was talking with a prison guard from one of the prisons down here asking about this. She said, we just can't get enough books because they don't buy them, of course, for them. But yeah, what you're telling me is absolutely true. Nicky Cruz's book is read by every gang member who ends up in prison. And he's seen as that. And God, see, God has his ways of getting someone that they absolutely respect to speak to every single gang leader and sergeant-at-arms in the Auckland scene. And before they left that day, they were told that they had to bring every single gang person that they had in their gang to Nikki's meeting, night meetings at Alexander Park, Park Raceway in 2007. Think what the Auckland public must have thought going to hear Nikki and seeing all these gang members sitting there as well. Now, Roy has died. He died of natural causes. And Cheryl shared that um, she and Sam and many others shared Christ with Roy, but um, they just could not uh, get, get through to him. But before he died on his deathbed, an elderly queer Because you see, no matter what the current generation think, there is such a history of revival in the Māori people who remember the stories, who tell the stories. There is so much true spirituality in the leadership and the, of the elderly across our country. And an elderly lady spoke to Roy and led him to Christ. And so I'm here to report that the leader and founder of the notorious mongrel mob is in heaven today. So God's golden thread goes on and the story's not finished because life hasn't finished. God is at work writing his story into history. And he's still doing it today. And we're invited to understand the past ourselves and to work today to where we can take injustice out of what, is, what has been in the past. The church was there at the very beginning of European and Maori coming together at Oihi Bay and, and at Waitangi in 1840. And God's call is that we be there now and out into the future as well. We have a wonderful Christian heritage in this nation and we need to claim it back and it starts by understanding and by learning because it inspires us to be able to honour each other and honour across any race and live together as equals in this wonderful country called Aotearoa. Can the music team come?